Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to day two of Sanctuary 2, the second installment of the 2020 Guernsey Funds Forum. My name is Rupert Pleasant, and I'm the Chief Executive of Guernsey Finance. For those of you who joined us for yesterday's session, welcome back. To those tuning in for the first time this week, thanks for joining us. You'll be able to catch up on what you've missed via the on-demand section on our website. In a turbulent and complex world, fund managers have developed a diverse range of strategies and business models to address the issues that matter to their investors. In this panel, we'll be hearing from leading market practitioners about their experiences in managing investors and how Guernsey's strengths have supported their needs in the current climate. Just before we begin, I'd like to reiterate some of the features of our webinar platform. You can submit questions using the widget for any of our live Q&A sessions towards the end, and we'll get round to answering as many as we can. If you'd like to react to us on social media, we'll be at we are Guernsey on Twitter with the event hashtag GYFF20. Some of our industry literature and our sponsors' resources are available to download from the widgets on screen, which are being highlighted now. So let's kick off, and I'm delighted to introduce our panelists for this webinar. Firstly, we have Joanna Hilton, Finance Director at Cairngorm Capital Partners, which is one of the first ever companies to establish a Guernsey private investment fund in 2017. Joe manages the company's fund administration activities, leading investor relations and regulatory compliance, and provides support for the finance directors of Cairngorm Capital's portfolio of companies. The Hillview Group has successfully launched two Guernsey PIFs and is in the process of launching its third regulated Guernsey fund. Today, Hillview Managing Director Navad Livni joins us. He has more than 25 years' experience in investment banking, private equity and public accountancy. During his career, Nadav has specialised in asset-backed investment transactions across several sectors in his capacity as advisor to controlling shareholders, private equity sponsors, as well as principal investors. Nadav has managed transactions worth over £100 billion, previously working at Goldman Sachs, Deutsche Bank and KPMG. Our third panellist is Gillian Martin. She's a director in the investment banking team at Liberum, responsible for investment funds. Gillian has over 15 years of city experience with previous roles in the corporate advisory teams at N Plus One Singer and Fairfax IS. Gillian has wide expertise in leading all types of transactions, including IPOs, secondary fund raisings, and public M&A across both AIM and the LSE. And finally, moderating our discussions is James Bromley, a partner in the London Private Funds Group at law firm Vile. He advises a wide range of fund managers on the establishment and operation of private funds across the private equity, infrastructure and real estate sectors, including on the strategic aspect of new fundraisings. In previous roles, James worked with the British Venture Capital Association and the UK government, advising on policy initiatives, the impact of legislative reforms and the drafting of primary legislation. I'll be back with some concluding comments towards the end, but for now, I will hand you over to James and the panel. Over to you, James. 
Thanks, Rupert. Uh, appreciate those introductions. Um, perhaps we could kick off um, with the panelists on maybe a couple of minutes each on your perspectives of, of the current investment landscape and, and what you're seeing in each of your areas. Gillian, if you could kick us off, that would be great. Yeah, thanks, James. Um, so I think there's a lot of talk yesterday um, in the session around uh, responsible capitalism and, you know, whether that is, a, in fact, a reality. Um, I think we are seeing um, that really come through in the way that investors are investing, uh, particularly in the, in the public markets. Um, I think the investment landscape is now being defined by a principle, really, of, of people wanting to make our world better, as well as uh, seeing returns, uh, good returns. Um, so whether that's to do with the environment or governance or just responsible investing, I think we're seeing that play through. Um, and then against that backdrop and the kind of uncertain world that we have, um, there is also the desire for very stable, um, you know, safe returns. And we're not really seeing um, investors sort of chasing the double-digit returns that they may have done a few years ago. It's more about sort of steady, reasonable returns. And then with this backdrop of, you know, the, the kind of social impact or the, uh, you know, the positives that can be brought by that, you know, that's really the sort of the icing on the cake. Um, so I think really it's about steady, stable and responsible investing. And I think that's what we're, we're, we're seeing. Um, that comes through in the asset classes across the funds that we, we see and um, I guess the popularity of those funds. So an obvious one there is, is renewables. Um, you know, there are a number of renewable uh, funds at the moment and that really plays into obviously the whole ESG environmental element but um, they have also proven um, you know fundamentally robust in the in the current environment um, and also things like healthcare REITs where there's a specialist um, aspect to those both from a social perspective but also a, a, a fundamentals perspective with uh, with solid returns and again the, you know these are not the the high um, you know, sort of early teens ret returns. These are steady, lower returns, but that's really what what we see people are driving for at the moment. Um, so, so it's sort of that landscape as as we see it across the the public market. But you know, that flows through obviously into the private as well. And Joe, is is that consistent with what you're seeing at Cairngorm? Obviously, your focus is on more of the distressed end of the market and obviously lots of opportunities in the current climate. But are you seeing similar things to what Gillian's mentioned? I think we've lost Jay there on the audio. And Nadav, maybe we'll, we'll drop to you in the in the real estate um, side of things. Are you, are you seeing consistent themes across the, the market in the same way that Gillian is? We are. We're probably seeing it with a bit of a uh, lag in a um, period of adjustment. Um, from our experience, we've seen two very important trends. Underlying both of those trends is the need for an active and transparent dialogue. On the one hand, with the Hillview investors, and the feedback from them has been the three matters uh, are really important for them. The first is applied to safety, as Julian said. I think they don't want to take any speculative positions at this stage, and they don't want any new ventures or potentially to um, take a risk on new managers. They're looking for seasoned managers with a proven track record and a strategy that has remained resilient during this time period. Secondly, important for the investors as well as for us as assets and fund managers is risk management, being very clear with where risks lie along the spectrum. 
how we mitigate those risks and what are the risks that help us drive the returns. And part of that, which we'll touch on later today, is also the management risk and the reporting and jurisdictional risk. And I'll be happy to share our rationale for raising fund three in Guernsey and the very positive experience we've had and how that's part of our risk management. And the third element is the value add strategy. In the current climate of both uncertainty, severe dislocations, as well as very low and in some cases negative interest rates, investors are looking for those managers that can um, drive the returns, have the skill set to manage the downside risk, the period of liquidity and solvency risk, as well as driving the returns that they're looking for. And our experience now of uh, raising fund three, while investors have limitations in terms of traveling and the various COVID restrictions, they're looking for those seasoned managers with a proven track record and this sort of value-add strategy. At the same time, we've also seen the performance of our underlying portfolio on the commercial real estate side with the dislocation, with the various government restrictions and the need for lockdowns, which aspects of the portfolio have remained resilient. And our deep focus on those regional cities has shown the ability for tenants still to maintain access to the properties, pay rent, our experience in Q2, Q3 and Q4 has been rent collection of between 85 and 95%, but it's maintaining that dialogue with tenants. It shouldn't be a zero-sum game. It should be how do we bridge together as partners, landlord, tenant, capital providers, this period of uh, uncertainty and risk. Thank you. Uh, very, very interesting perspective there. Uh, Joe, are you, are you back with us? Are you, are you working? Can you, can you hear me? Oh, yes, there we go. Perfect. On the world of distressed, distressed investments in the current environment. Yeah, I'm not sure how much you heard me before, maybe nothing, but um, saying from our point of view, um, you know, we're seeing that LPs are backing strategies and firms that they know, which is along the lines of what Julian was saying with the fundamentals. Um, and that, as you said, you know, the, there is appetite now for distressed debts and special situation funds um, coming on the back of what's been a turbulent year in the, the pandemic. Um, so we're seeing those. And then I suppose at an investment level for us, um, we're seeing opportunities coming through from companies requiring new capital. Um, and the, the expected changes that are coming through on the capital gains tax, mm. um, meaning that entre entrepreneurs and vendors are starting to consider selling uh, before these changes might come in in April. Um, and with the second lockdown happening in, in um, a couple of days' time, um, we think that's only probably going to increase those motivations and the requirements for new liquidity. And so expecting quite a high um, deal activity um, in the first, few, first quarter of, of next year once we come through um, this next lockdown. Fingers crossed. Um, so if we move beyond those sort of the strong fundamentals of the market and into some of the more uh, on-trend things that we're seeing investors and LPs push for. Uh, Gillian, you touched on, on ESG as a topic that's, that's, yeah. that's quite consistently coming up time and time again, both from managers and LPs. Could you share some of your experiences with what, what LPs are looking for? Yeah, so I think, you know, investors generally across the board are looking at ESG very carefully and it's sort of, it's moved from, you know, a very nascent concept to something that is really becoming embedded in in, in everything that we, we look at doing now. And I think, you know, yes, 
you know, people are thinking, gosh, ESG again, you know, there's so much talk about ESG, but it really is a broad church in terms of what it encompasses. And ultimately, you know, it can mean so many different things depending on a particular asset class, a particular fund, um, and, you know, strategy. Um, and I think what investors have realized or are realizing um, in our experience is that, um, you know, sound ESG principles and approach um, and, and ultimately measuring against those um, can lead then not only to obviously improvements in things like environmental aspects and better governance, but actually fundamentally can also flow through to better returns. Um, you know, there was a, even across, obviously things like renewables are, are obvious, you know, great strong candidates for, for really good ESG um, credentials. But I think even if you go to the likes of private private equity funds, um, you know, there is something that everyone can do and tailor um, to fit the the model or the asset class that they, they are operating in. And to give an example, there's a private equity fund I know well, um, you know, they brought in some new SG criteria in terms of how they're measuring their underlying investee companies. Um, and, you know, from that, you know, just to give one example, um, found in an investee company that, you know, absence rates due to sickness were, were unusually high. Um, looking into that further, you know, it, it's it, they they found some issues around the management of that. Um, once those were corrected, obviously that improves performance in terms of you know work ethic, etc., and and that can ultimately flow through to uh, to performance. So it just goes to show that you you don't need to be a sort of green, you know, um, just a you know an obvious candidate. Um, there are ways of um, adapting ESG appropriately uh, to your model, and of course by measuring these things, it can really improve as well as a, a company's governance, it can improve underlying financial performance. Great. And, and, and Nadav, Joe, you, you know, you've both been out there on the fundraising market recently and, um, and pounding the pavement, so to speak. Is this something that LPs are asking of you and your funds more and more? Or is it is it something that's sort of given a little bit of lip service and then people actually look at, at your returns? And perhaps, uh, Nadav, if we go to you first on that one. Very much. So I think was in the past uh, when we were raising uh, earlier funds, it was a exercise of asking a few questions and taking the box. Today, investors have had a lot more experience with ESG as a strategy, as well as expectations from managers to conduct themselves um, in a certain manner and to have ESG integral in their investment strategy. Fortunately for us, our value-add work incorporates a lot of the ESG elements, and that's been an integral part of our uh, execution. To give you a few examples, um, underlying our uh, investment uh, thesis, it's uh, renovating commercial property and over a period of time repositioning them. That means that we undertake refurbishments, it's improvement in energy efficiency, installing state-of-the-art uh, ventilation and water systems, as well as looking then at improve the quality of the environment for our tenants, as well as the community, engaging local contractors, recycling where possible, um, right down to uh, putting bicycle racks in showers to make sure that we offer a lot more uh, flexibility to tenants and also to the local community. We've had instances where we work with the local council on uh, planting and uh, installing electric charge points, 
And this is all part of what our um, tenants expect from us, as well as investors, and increasingly state providers as well, who are starting now to uh, send annual questionnaires and as part of uh, their underwriting strategy, want to see how their manager um, is performing in that respect. And I think this is all very important that various stakeholders are holding managers accountable to implementing the strategy. It's no longer ESG um, needs to come at a price in terms of a compromise on returns. They still have the same return expectation. It's down to conduct as well as substance and form. And I think it improves the game as well in terms of how a team is managed on professional expectations, transparency and accountability, as well as fundamentally being engaged with the local communities rather than an absent landlord. And I think now, I just come back to the point I made earlier, now during this time of a severe dislocation and uncertainty, when dialogue is so important with tenants as well as local communities, even down to rent collection, it's all down to how we've behaved as a landlord and as a uh, partner to our occupiers down to the level of rent collection that we've achieved and improving the buildings. We recently finished a project on a property we acquired during COVID. It, the refurbishment has been done to what we call COVID standards, which has been high levels of um, hygiene. It's um, avoiding any touch points and um, improving the flow of the building, as well as upgrading the air filtration systems. So I think going forward, this will absolutely be an important part for any manager, not just an ESG-focused strategy. That's great. Maybe, maybe a question for you with your sort of dual hat on as, as finance and investor relations. From a reporting side of, uh, of things with, with your investors, are you, are you finding a demand for increased reporting around ESG? Is it, is it a generic reporting requirement or are you looking at specific areas? Um, yeah, I mean, we, we've been seeing it just through fundraising. Um, the LP is increasingly concerned with it, as both Nadav and, and Gillian have said. So we're seeing it that part of it. But then in um, in the reporting part, we are starting to get specific questions coming through from a variety of different investors. Um, and we just see this increasing and that it will become quite a standard part of our of our reporting going forward and in in that space as well there's a number of people coming into the market with new products um, to help with that and to be able to facilitate the ESG reporting through to, to the funds and to your LPs um, and as Gillian said you know there is a lot of um, I suppose research behind the fact that you're, you're getting the high returns from from ESG as well so it's an important factor and I can only see that um, that area growing for the standard reporting from from the manager's point of view. Thank you. I'm just going to pick up on a couple of questions that we've had come through, because um, I think this ESG topic is, is definitely um, sort of caused some interest out there. Do we think, uh, generally speaking, investors and, and, dare I say, managers are reporting ESG in a homogenized uh, way, or are they picking up on specific strands that are relevant to their, their particular strategy? Gillian, you obviously have a sort of slightly broader base of knowledge with the number of clients that you serve. Is that is that idea of the specifics versus the general something that's coming through? Um, it's starting to come through. I think, you know, people, because it is very diverse, then I think people are very much still grappling with what is appropriate for them. Um, obviously, there are um, certain um, standards, which, um, you know, MSCI, et cetera, which can be followed. Um, but I think it's about having a tailored approach, depending on, on your asset class and reporting on that and your strategy. Um, I think, you know, one of the key things 
start offering investors and appreciators, um, you know, reporting as to be as full as possible, but also as 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 honest as possible. So there are certain strategies which will not tick every box, you know, for, from an ESG perspective, um, but be the best that you can do in an, in a very honest way with with your particular strategy. So you know, I think um, whilst there are certain standards, they're not always going to be appropriate, and it's really about doing the best that you can do at this stage. Thank you. It's, uh, it's very useful. What I'd like to do is maybe pivot away from the ESG topic for the time being with a consciousness uh, of the time that we've got available. Let's move on to sort of Guernsey as a destination of choice for fund jurisdictions and, and, um, and the raising of capital internationally. Uh, Joe, you, you guys obviously chose Guernsey and you were one of the first out there with the PIF. Is the, you know, could you give us a couple of uh, moments on your insights into why Guernsey was chosen and, and what you see the advantages of? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, all of our funds are based in based in Guernsey, and um, you know we see it's a very attractive jurisdiction um, for us and for the, our investors. Um, there's obviously the regulation part of it, and it being a global finance centre, um, but also the human capital and resources that you have on the island, um, from administrators, lawyers, auditors, advisors, and um, NEDs, um, and with a lot of expertise in, in our in our market, um, and this enables enables us to, you know, appoint uh, good quality NEDs to our board, have the support behind it, which all adds to, to our funds um, and the, the calibre of support we can have. Um, for them. And as you mentioned, the PIF um, and the flexibility around some of the products that, that you have in Guernsey. And um, and we were able to have, um, we raised our fund, I think we're one of the first in 2017. Um, we had a small base of investors who were able to, to benefit from the, the quick um, approval of that and the flexibility around that product. And Nadav, just picking up on something I, I, I think uh, that we were discussing earlier, this concept of human capital that Joe's picked up on there with the, the, the number of advisors that are very, very familiar with fund structuring and, and, and all of the attendant uh, issues that come with that, but also, dare I say, the commercial understanding of the intricacies of fundraising with international LPs. This concept of, of Guernsey having the human capital required to, to raise funds in an international setting is, is something that's, you know, draws a lot of people to the jurisdiction. Presumably, that that's consistent with what you guys have seen across the, the various funds that you have in your suite of product. That's right. I think uh, from my experience, we've had a number of uh, decision points uh, over the last decade of looking where to base and domicile our funds and looking at the environment that we've been working on. We've had over the last decade a number of uh, instances, whether it's the a global financial crisis to COVID to Brexit along the way. These have been key events. And as I mentioned earlier, for our investors as well as asset managers, where possible risk management and stability is so important, the funds we structure tend to be five to seven year funds. And we try to future proof them as much as possible. Currency each time has really uh, managed to differentiate and excel itself in terms of stability, forward looking, in terms of the work that the regulator has been doing, remaining at the forefront of best practices on CDD, AML, transparency and reporting, as well as uh, being very helpful and supportive to uh, fund managers and our data as well. Just the quality of the talent pool uh, 
of the professionals that we've had the uh, privilege of working with has been second to none, and that enables building long-term relationships, carrying forward the knowledge from one fund to another, but also having a sense of excellence where as Guernsey has uh, established itself and with know-how and structuring solutions, we've found managed to certainly benefit from that. And we've worked with some great names uh, on the island with Apex, Aquarian, Ogiers and Walkers. And I think that ability to tap into world-leading expertise, as well as have uh, names like KPMG and Grant Thornton provide the uh, assurance services, as well as the structuring solutions for us and our investors, has meant that Guernsey has uh, retained its relevance in the uh, post-Brexit world, as well as uh, in the current environment, giving technological solutions for on travel to the island, as well as economic substance, actually having a lot of meaning with the sexual power we've had on the island, as well as our ability to select the uh, NEDs. The quality of the NEDs that uh, I've met on the island, as well as uh, our um, opportunity to engage people like Andreas and our board, and a tremendous value, which I'm very proud of. Thank you. Uh, I, I, that's uh, very consistent with um, you know what we see. We raise a number of funds through Guernsey and, and the consistency of the application of both the regulations and the law in, in Guernsey, but also the service providers that are there are, 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 are one of the reasons that it's a, it's a destination of choice for a number of our managers. We've had a couple of questions in on, on, on this, and I think you know, Dad, you picked up on this, 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 this question of economic substance and how important it's been coming. But what I'd, I'd like to do is, Gillian, if we could come to you on advising managers on onshoring or offshoring and how much input you have around recommendations for, for jurisdictions in which to base your clients' um, fund vehicles. Is, is that something you get heavily involved in? Yes, it is, because it's really fundamental to, to the proposition. And, um, you know, when we're structuring a new opportunity or let's call it a new product, a new fund, um, there are a number of different, um, you know, things to take into account from the strategy, the asset class, the location of the assets, um, you know, the regulatory requirements, the service providers, etc. Um, many years ago, you know, we would see lots of offshore um, funds in the lifted, listed space you know in, in fairly far-flung places so came in BVI I think the you know the increased focus on governance over the last few years has very much seen that move closer to home with um, you know Guernsey and, and Darian mentioned the, the name but Jersey um, you know obviously um, being a big part of that and um, and really, when we're, we're looking, ultimately, you know, it comes down to having a common sense approach to the structure in terms of efficiency. So what works from a tax perspective um, and, you know, and, and the regulation. Um, I think, you know, for our investors in the listed space, um, they're very comfortable with, with Guernsey as a jurisdiction. And I think for listed closed end funds, it is very much the, the first choice for an offshore jurisdiction. Increasingly, over the last few years, we have seen more on vehicles with the change of investment trust rules and, and REITs um, but certainly depending on on um, you know on the particular strategy and the location of the manager etc then then Guernsey would would be top of the list um, in, in terms of uh, choice for offshore um, and I think really from a, a you know a regulatory environment 
perspective, they have, you know, Guernsey has always been quite at the forefront in terms of, of adapting regulation to be, have the right balance between being user-friendly but having the right level of regulation such that it's respected. Um, you know, you have corporate law very similar to, to that in the UK. Um, and so, you know, for, for all of those reasons, it, it's, it's very comfortable from an investor perspective as well as, you know, the, the good service providers who are well regulated themselves. Um, and I think, you know, Guernsey has shown with the Green Fund accreditation that it's always thinking of outside the box and of the, the new ideas that, that can be, um, I guess, on trend um, for what we're seeing in the in the wider market. So, um, so look, uh, I think it worked really well. Thank you. And Joe, obviously, as one of the first managers out there with the PIF structure when you launched it, have you, you've obviously benefited from that flexibility of regulation. From an operational standpoint, then, going forward into COVID-19 and with the pandemic, have you seen any, any issues arising as a consequence of having a, an offshore fund with an offshore structure, or has it been pretty much business as usual? Um, and it's been business as usual, really. I mean, I think with, we were talking about the, the economic substance and the new rules that came in in 2019 in Guernsey. Um, actually, during the pandemic, you know, there was some realization on, on some of those that enabled VCs, you know, to be able to dial into video conferences, and they understood that there needed to be some flexibility around that with the restrictions. Um, obviously, I've not been able to travel to Guernsey for, for a while, um, but everything is with all the service providers and the high caliber, you know, we're able to carry on as we would normally. And, you know, we've had all that support um, through that and from our, our non-exec directors as well and from the board all through our, our support and administrators in really making sure we have the tools to carry on business as normal in very un abnormal times. Um, so, yeah, I think it, it's the flexibility that they show around the regulation, you know, that you are getting that balance, but it, it works um, in a practical level for, for your managers and funds as well. That's great. I'm going to I'm going to pivot away from from our discussion now and, and take some of the questions that have come up on the on the forum. Um, Gillian, you've got one um, directed to you, um, so I'll read it out and hopefully you'll be able to interpret it better than perhaps uh, I can from the uh, unlisted funds world. Um, have there been any new fund IPOs on the LSE this year, um, and what does this mean for likely demand for issuance going into 2021? Um, yes, a good one. So there, there has been. So a good example is a recent one, Home REIT, um, which again we we talked a little earlier about kind of specialist REITs, and that is um, that was established to invest in accommodation um, for for homeless people, homeless charities, etc. Um, it was a very quiet um, first half of the year, um, where um, you know we we saw very little activity, if any, on on the IPO front, and it was all about secondary issuance and um, and listed listed funds um, demonstrating you know their resilience in the uh, in the pandemic. Um, we've also seen um, um, triple point energy infrastructure, which was another um, listed fund, um, didn't quite get to the the target amount, but was was enough to um, to list. And actually, we've seen a number of ITFs as well, um, you know, go out for for new funds that are looking to come to market within the next few weeks. I think whether you know they are all successful or not, um, clearly, you know, it's hard to tell, but. 
I think those, you know, the two I've mentioned have got the strong fundamentals that we, we talked about uh, at the beginning, which is the, you know, the kind of specialist nature, the um, social impact, you know, one's got an environmental focus, etc. So you can see how they, um, they would be successful. Um, there was another uh, renewable energy um, uh, fund ITF yesterday. Um, there being already several in the market, so it'll be interesting to see, um, you know, if that if that's successful. But I think, you know, if we look at the renewable space, one of our clients, the Renewables Infrastructure Group, you know, that's a got a market cap now of 2.3 billion, um, and liquidity is key for people. So it's uh, it's it's much easier to back um, the existing funds at the moment which can give you liquidity and you know are off scale already um, than it is to back an IPO but obviously we do want investors to, to back IPOs because everyone's got to start somewhere and um, so so there is activity um, obviously not on a scale that, that we would typically see but it's it's really good to see some coming through. Great, thank you. Um, one of the other questions we've had is, is what, what do we think the landscape looks like post-Brexit uh, at the start of next year? And do we think that's going to make things better for Guernsey or, or worse for Guernsey? Uh, Nadav, I, you're obviously in market at the moment. Um, any, any considerations that went into that when you were thinking about launching your, your existing fund? Absolutely. So when we were launching, and it's a very good question, when we were launching and structuring the fund three, it was at the back end of last year. Brexit was still being talked about the agenda long before COVID came up, and that was before the election. So we didn't have clarity on which way the agreement would ultimately transpire. And we took comfort from the fact that the regulator in Guernsey assured us and the comfort we had with the structures, it would be Brexit proof in a sense, whatever arrangements in the UK would be reached um, with new regulators, um, Guernsey would ensure to continue with that consistency, uh, both between UK and Guernsey as well as Guernsey and uh, the rest of the world arrangements. Following investors, the important aspect of they were coming in from Guernsey is um, the ability for structuring arrangements, uh, asset management, regulatory regime between Guernsey and the UK. And there again, we found that relationship to be very stable, very sensible. And I think ultimately, over the course of 2020, our decision was uh, right. Um, a, in terms of the um, currency authorities generally being able to manage COVID so well, which gave us operating uh, continuity. That was incredibly important for us. Within Mr. Day, our team uh, in Guernsey was able to continue operating. So that's very important. The regulator has been very helpful in terms of uh, travel restrictions. But more importantly, as we're fundraising during COVID, we didn't want to give investors any reason or excuse to have any uncertainty on coming in uh, to the fund. And that all goes back to what I said earlier, uh, risk management. We have continued to fundraise successfully. All of the investors were able to want more for themselves as a jurisdiction, manage their own tax affairs vis-a-vis uh, -vis tax agreements with Guernsey, which has been very important. And the AML and CDD work that Guernsey needs from other jurisdictions has been consistent all along. One of the aspects that has been frustrating for some investors has been the moving target in terms of what uh, ultimately will be required when Guernsey is introduced as a jurisdiction. And we take comfort that post-Brexit, that will continue as well. 
Thanks, Zab. Hopefully, hopefully everybody got that. Uh, I think your microphone might be a little bit covered, so it was a bit difficult to, to hear you on that one. Um, but Joe, maybe, I mean, obviously you, you're, you're happy with Guernsey for the time being. Can you speak a little bit about the international appeal of Guernsey as a, as a domiciliation for your international LP base and, and how, how, if at all, you've thought about what that's going to look like in, in, in the new world post-Brexit and post-COVID? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, as we've kind of touched on a number of times through this, um, you know, Guernsey is a, a global finance centre, which is well respected, um, that there's the right level of regulation. Um, and, and I suppose, as Gillian said, that it, it balances that with with the workload and the governance um, for, for the funds. And so for our investors, um, all of those aspects really give to the comfort they have being based here. Um, and, and, you know, they're very happy with with where we are and and and, and that we're domiciled in Guernsey and will continue to, to be so. Um, as Nadal said, um, you know, looking forward with Brexit, it's that certainty and, and knowing that Guernsey are going to look after um, and make sure that regulation stays, you know, being, being whitelisted, um, where other jurisdictions haven't, haven't met those those. Um, levels um, it just means that we are in a position where we we can you know be very comfortable going forward um, that that is going to stay the same and that our investors are, are going to be happy with it and that any changes that come up you know the guns are going to be flexible we have to deal with those Thank you. Uh, one of the other things that obviously Guernsey is, is starting to sort of um, push for and, and, and make a, 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 an easier facilitation is the migration of existing structures offshore. So perhaps non-Guernsey-based structures uh, migrating those to, to Guernsey, uh, Guernsey domiciliation. Gillian, are you talking to any of your clients around moving existing fund structures offshore, or is it very much still the sort of idea that you go out with a new fund structure for a new fund? Um, yeah, it's very much a new fund structure for a new fund. I, I don't see any immediate sort of moving offshore for onshore funds currently. I think one of the things in, in the UK with the listed closed-end fund market is that um, many of the investors are UK-based, UK um, and we don't necessarily passport a huge amount in, into Europe. When we do market into Europe, it's on a kind of selective basis and usually under the private placement regimes, um, because in Europe, in many European countries, the, you know, the open-ended fund model is better understood than the the closed end fund model um so we look i think like everyone will we'll yet to see what the impact of, of brexit will be um hopefully we can insulate um you know any any consequences um to to a certain degree having guernsey there you know with its um arrangements already is clearly going to be beneficial um so we don't see any kind of immediate drive, um, but you know it's one to consider, I guess, as we as we look at new structures going forward. Brilliant, thank you. And Adav, I've, I've got a question for you here on the Q and A, um, and it's asked: Can you share your views on both the listed and non-listed markets in respect of real estate funds going into 2021? I think you could probably do that over the course of a, the next hour or so if you if you were given the time. But maybe just a, a couple of succinct headline points would be great. Exactly, how long do you have? I've always been an advocate of uh, looking at value I would say from the unlisted perspective purely because of the duration needed to acquire the asset through the reposition of value and then monetize it. But there's obviously uh, important 
Nadab, we've uh, we've we've lost your uh, feed there a little bit. Apologies, um, the, the the audio is not very good. Um, I'm going to ask a couple of other questions to to, to Joe and Gillian while we've while we've got you, and, and hopefully the uh, the producers can uh, sort out Nadab's, Nadab's microphone. Um, have, Gillian, perhaps one for you in the first instance. Have you done um, a lot of work with the Guernsey Green Fund at all, and, and some of the accreditation work that's come out of that with any of your uh, environmentally focused managers managers? Well, well, just one. So, um, you know, renewable fund. So that has got the green accreditation. Um, it's not wider than that at the moment, but I, I think you know, again, the LSE have have got their green standard. So I think this is an area which we'll be exploring a lot more. Um, naturally, the ones that fit mo most immediately are the renewable funds. But um, but I think I think we'll see a broadening out of that to the extent possible. Um, but that's still sort of being looked at at the moment. Great, thank you. And just picking up, we've had a number of questions. In fact, the main thrust of the questions that we've received is around this idea of ESG reporting and standardization and, and, and so on and so forth. Um, perhaps one of the, coming to you, Joe, with, with one of the questions that's come up, do you see a, a delineation between investors that are seeking a, a sort of a finance first return with, a, with an ESG wrap around it versus those that are looking for ESG or impact returns, and, and can you have them in the same fund? Um, I, I think there probably is going to be a bit of delineation in that there are going to be some investors where it, it's a nice to have rather than a must have. Um, and I suppose from our, our own experience, it, it tends to probably be the former where it's not um, it's not the, the biggest concern at the moment. Um, but I think as, as time moves on, that is going to become, you know, that separation is going to narrow and it's going to become more standard practice across the board. And I think as we're talking about the the standard reporting, I think, um, you know, at the moment it's such wide-ranging um kind of uh, environment and so many things that you can look at that it, it is going to be quite hard for that to get to that level. Um, but I'm sure that as, as things progress, there will start being some you know, fairly standard things that come out of the reporting. Um, and from what I speak to in, in terms of other um, FDs and, and other kind of networking events, it tends to be something that's coming up quite a lot. Um, and I think in the next few years, you'll really see that, that push forward. 
Yeah, I think it's, it's definitely an area that we're seeing as well. In fact, we had a, I had a conversation with a client the other day. He was he was jurisdiction shopping, for want of a better phrase, and uh, one of the decisions that fed into their uh, process was actually the amount of air travel that they'd have to do to get to their jurisdiction. So it, it's definitely something that's becoming more and more um, relevant to the decision-making process and things. Gillian, sorry, I interrupted you. Yeah, I was just going to, to add to that in, in the listed space. Uh, as Nadav said before, um, we don't see people wanting ESG at the expense of returns, but actually in addition to the returns. So it's sort of cake and eating it. But but as we, uh, as we mentioned a bit earlier, um, actually the two can go together and, you know, the ESG angle can actually improve returns as well so so it shouldn't necessarily be one or the other you know at the ex so so it can work hand in hand but i think um people are you know looking for i think we've really struggled to launch a a new um aircraft leasing fund right now or you know something to do with um oil and gas you know it's just not not where people want to be um investing um notwithstanding the returns that that, that could create that's great. Um, Ed, uh, any final concluding remarks from anybody? Otherwise, I'm conscious of time, so we'll, we'll pass back over to Rupert for his conclusions. Nothing for me. Brilliant. Rupert, if you're there, can we pass back to you? Yes, absolutely. Um, thank you very much indeed. Um, it, it's obviously been a very informative and dynamic discussion. So, James, thank you very much to yourself and to the panel. Um, I think it's clear that there's a very strong desire for steady and reasonable returns, um, but with a backdrop of social impact, uh, especially in renewables, uh, by the sounds of it. Investors are still expecting the same returns, although uh, looking for some kind of an ESG side to their investments with solid reporting standards is, is absolutely key. Um, but looking at it amongst the backdrop of CGT considerations uh, that are coming in in April 2021, um, so clearly a slight concern there. Um, when looking at a centre of excellence, human capital is crucial uh, with a good commercial understanding of fundraising and fund administration. Uh, and this is going to be especially true in the post-Brexit environment as well. Um, and then finally, there's been a huge increase in the desire for solid corporate governance um, and Guernsey's at the forefront of flexible and adaptable regulation. Um, so that's very good to know. So, um, to sum up, as the panel mentioned, Guernsey's developed a suite of products appealing to managers and investors, which demonstrate the island's strengths as a centre for alternative investment funds through its flexible regulatory regime. The current trend for migrations to satisfy the demands of economic substance has focused thinking on what managers are really looking for in today's climate. Guernsey has certainly got very high standards of service and lower regulatory costs in a secure and stable uh, jurisdiction of substance. You could say we offer real sanctuary. Boom, boom. Uh, just a few words of thanks from me before we sign off today. Thanks again to our speakers for a really insightful discussion this afternoon and to the team at Guernsey Finance for their work in putting this event together. Thanks to our headline sponsors, Kerry Olson and Osher, all our supporter sponsors, who you can see on the screen now, and our media partners, BVCA and Funds Europe. And finally, thanks to all of you for joining us today. Today's webinar will be available again shortly on demand, so please feel free to share that link if you know anyone else who will be interested by what was discussed today. Please do also complete our survey as your feedback is important for us when planning any future events. 
So this time tomorrow, we may know the result of the US election and whether it will be seeing President Trump or President Biden in the White House. Tomorrow brings me to the conclusion of the 2020 Guernsey Funds Forum, and I'll be joined by the renowned journalist and broadcaster Andrew Neil, fresh from the election and his final job reporting for the BBC, to discuss the results and its implications. I'm sure it'll be an absolutely fascinating uh, insight to hear his views, including what it means for the UK, which is obviously a key market for our financial services industry here in Guernsey. So please do join us for that tomorrow. But for now, it's goodbye from Guernsey and enjoy the rest of your afternoon. Thanks. Bye-bye.